scripture again is taken from the 61st number of Psalms as we continue to work through these great Psalms. Uh, but Psalm 61, and we'll look at verses 1 through 4. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments of David, hear, o my, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, strong tower against the enemy. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now there is much that we will be looking at tonight that bears resemblance to the subject matter that David dealt with in the 39th number of Psalms, so there's going to be a little bit of crossover, but I want to focus our attention because, again, the, the issue here is a disposition within David himself that caused him to be distracted to whatever degree. Now, my contention is that the linchpin of this particular psalm is actually verse 2. Probably there is, is both the problem that is being addressed as well as the solution to that problem. Uh, lead me, he says, to the rock that is higher than I. And I think that is really the centerpiece of this particular psalm. And so that being the case, what I want to do is I want to begin with a rather lengthy quotation from a 19th century preacher commenting on verse 2 and the language of it. And as a matter of fact, it's a number of the old King James guys that, that understand this verse in the same way but I think it is expressed here probably the most uh, pointedly and poetically and uh, most profoundly. So let me just quote from, uh, and, and by the way, this is uh, certainly a 19th century Puritan-esque name. His first name is Fountain, kind of like Cotton Mather, you know, but this is Fountain, and his last name is Elwin. So this is a quote from uh, Fountain Elwin from 1842 and his comment on verse 2 of this psalm. He says the language, of, uh, the, the language here is very remarkable. It gives us the idea of a man suffering shipwreck. The vessel in, in which he has been sailing has sunk and he has been plunged into the mighty ocean. And there he is buffeting the waves and struggling for life, panting for breath and just about to give up and uh, just about to give up all as being lost. Suddenly, he discovers a rock towering above him. If he can but climb to the top of it and get sure footing upon it, then the billows will not be able to reach him and he will be safe. I think that's a wonderful word picture uh, as to what, where David is and in his struggles. And obviously in this scenario, David would be the shipwrecked man. So what I want to do rather briefly, and we'll just look at three things uh, in light of that understanding, the, the, the scene, the metaphor that's used here of a person being shipwrecked, and these are the words of a shipwrecked soul. So we understand if David is the one who is shipwrecked, then we understand that this is, this is the testimony of a saint. 
This isn't one who has been lost. This is one who is indeed saved. So there are three things that we want to look at. First off, the vessel. If, if David is shipwrecked, then what is the vessel that he has been shipwrecked in? I think, again, verse 2, being the centerpiece of the psalm, says, Take me, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. That being the case, I would argue that the, the vessel that has caused David to be shipwrecked is, is, is his own uh, or confidence in his own possessions and his own abilities. In other words, the ship that he has been shipwrecked in is the ship of pride. In other words, David has seen himself in too high of a light. Uh, that's why he says, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. And what is assumed in that statement is that I'm a rock. And I think part of the, what we'll see here is God is going to show David who the rock is. But this is, it's, it's, it's important for us to see this idea of a self confidence in one's position, one's possessions, one's external circumstances, because this is true not only of individuals, but it's also true of corporate church bodies. Sometimes we can be on the, on the sea, just doing our thing, and all of a sudden we get kind of caught up in our vessel. We get caught up in our position within the community, our, 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 our own place. We get, we get a little puffed up with pride. We see it in a couple of places in the letters to the churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. First off, with the church of Ephesus, we are told that they had left their first love. Secondly, we see with the church of Sardis that they had a reputation, but God's reality was different from their reputation. And thirdly, we see with the church of Laodicea that they were so puffed up that they thought they were well off because of their, their numbers, because of their finances. They looked at everything. And then he says, you don't understand that, that you are actually poor, you're naked, and you're blind. So his advice to this corporate body that had this great standing in the church community is you need to see yourself. And perhaps David's situation here, the vessel that he is in, we've seen it at a couple of places. Like I said, there is uh, somewhat of a continuation from the theme that's covered in the 39th Psalm, which we looked at last week, and some of the issues that, that are addressed here. David is shipwrecked, metaphorically, because he has been caught up in him. And he sees himself as the standard, whether it is his position as king of Israel Maybe it's because he's the one that brought peace to the land. It is under David's rule and reign as God's king of Israel that finally all of those who had not been put out initially when Joshua led them into the land, he deals with most of the other enemies. David is the king after God's own heart, and the Lord lets him know that. And maybe somewhere along his, in, in all of his dealings, David got a little puffed up in what God had allowed him to experience. On more than one occasion, we are told that God had given him peace in the land. We see that he has accumulated a vast number of other nations in alliance with, him, with, him, uh, with, with the nation. We see that he had accumulated personal wealth. He even had expanded his family, and perhaps David 
was a little complacent in the blessings that the Lord had allowed him to experience. And as we mentioned last week, maybe he got a little Nebuchadnezzar-itis. Look at this kingdom that I have accomplished. And brothers and sisters, lest we get a little too uh, cheeky about, and I always think of my, my, my friend David Wells who has that British way of speaking and he talks about being cheeky, but, but maybe we get a little too built up, a little too cute for ourselves when God allows us to experience certain things, not that he takes them away from us, but it gives us a false sense of ourselves, whether this, this could be true of us individually. Maybe we, we have learned that we have come further than we were in the past in terms of our grasp of, 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 of gospel, of the gospel, of doctrine. And maybe we get a little puffed up and look down on others who don't know what we know. Maybe we have accomplished more than other churches in our circumstances, or we have accomplished more, we have progressed more than others in our individual Christian circles, and we make that a ship that allows us to, that, that allows us to get on board as if we are a rock. In other words, David has a high view of himself, and Part of the issue here, and really the centerpiece of this psalm, is David having to evaluate himself in a different light. The vessel, therefore, if David is, if we are to extend this metaphor of a shipwrecked vessel, then the vessel that David is shipwrecked in is the vessel of pride. This is perhaps why in Psalms 19, verse 13, he says, keep your servant from presumptuous sin. Presumptuous, the word presumptuous means of pride. And then he offers this second part of that petition. Not only does he say, keep me from presumptuous sin, but don't let them have dominion over me. I was speaking with a young preacher a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how he had reached out to a couple of other preachers in his circle and, and how in certain circles that he was, had become used to that the popular preachers they look down on the young guys. They don't take the time to, to, to nurture relationships. And then if you get close, in fact, I've seen it where the young guys carry their Bibles. They, you know, carry the Bible, walk before them, that sort of thing. And, and he says, wow, I, it's, it's, you know, how can a young man learn uh, other than through those who have already been on the journey for a while? Maybe some of us get a little puffed up. Maybe, maybe we get a little proud of what we have accomplished, what we have experienced, or even what we know. And maybe, therefore, as in those cases, maybe presumptuous sin has taken dominion. You know, what that basically means, to say that it has dominion, it, it means to be driven by, that, you, that, that what drives us is pride of person and pride of accomplishment and pride of possession. And, and David, saint that he is, is not exempt from these things. A friend once said that, and it's true, that one of the things that makes the Bible stand out as opposed to other religious uh, literature is that it shows its heroes warts and all. This is not some made-over story. This, David is not given a facelift. We see the brutal ugliness of all of his sin, whether it is his sin with Bathsheba, his sin of numbering the people, or even the sin of pride that causes him to be puffed up. And he sees himself 
as a rock. Think about that. God made man out, not out of pebbles. God doesn't make man out of the rocks of the earth. God made man of the dust. And if Adam was dust before the fall, then how much more dusty are we after the fall? And how dare a piece of dust think that he's a rock? And God wants David to know, you were dust when I made Adam. And you are dust now. And, and, and something gets in the water. Something gets in the air. I don't know where it comes from. But, but somehow specks of dust have these ways, these grandiose views of themselves. Maybe David got caught up in that. And so the Lord allows this rock to see the rock. The Lord allows him to, to get in his ship of accomplishment to get in his ship of, of self-satisfaction and then encounter the real rock. You see, brothers and sisters, isn't that what the Lord says in, in Revelation? He tells the church at Ephesus, you've departed from your first love. He tells them to return to the first love or else you'll be standing, but I'm going to take my, my lampstick from in your midst. Take, you, you return to your first love. He tells the church at Sardis, you have a reputation, but if you don't watch yourself, your reputation, you will be the exact opposite of what people think you are. He tells the church of Laodicea, listen, you need to buy from me. You need to be dependent upon me. You think that you have something, but here's what he teaches all of us, whether it's individuals or corporate bodies. There's nothing that you lay claim to outside of what is covered by the blood of Christ that can't be removed with a wink of the divine eye. You think all that you have, you, you think that you're more than someone, you think that you are stronger than someone because you know a little bit of doctrine? He says, listen, I'll, I'll put that knowledge somewhere else. You think that you are something because you have buildings, because you have stuff? He says all of that, that can be gone. An earthquake can flatten it. A hurricane can flatten it. Hard times can change it. And so sometimes we, we think we're rock and forget that we're dust. I think part of the problem with David here, whatever, whatever set of circumstances that he's dealing with, something allowed him to think that he was a rock. But here's the second thing to note. If David, if, if David is the man in the analogy given by Elwin, and if the vessel that he is in is his own self-confidence and his accomplishments and his position and his power, then the storm that he encounters that makes him shipwreck is nothing more than the providential hand of God. And the providential hand of God manipulates the circumstances of human history in order to accomplish a particular purpose. It is the hand of God. It is the hand of God that we see moving in human lives and human circumstances to bring about a particular purpose, just as it was in God's intention to bring Joseph to a place where he could deliver his brothers in the time of famine. But along the way, David or Joseph had to learn how to get over himself. And so he allows him to be sold as a slave. 
He allows him to be cast into a pit. He allows him, he manipulates the circumstances so that just when his brothers are trying to determine what to do with him and someone are killing, someone has a traveling group of Ishmaelites that are there so are looking to make a profit. And so rather than kill him, let's make some money on him. Just at the nick of time. And then when he's taken into, into Egypt, he is given a position, and you can imagine Joseph again thinking, wow, this is pretty good. And Joseph does everything right. He's no longer puffed up, not like he was. And he even restrains himself when, when Potiphar's wife makes a move on him. But yet, even in his innocence, he finds himself in prison. And can you imagine that at that point, it's time to throw the pity party. Oh, I did everything right. And still find myself in jail. And you know what? We're never told how long he was in jail. But it was long enough for other folk to get set free. And for him to be forgotten. It was certainly more than 90 days. It wasn't, it wasn't 30 days in the cooler. It, he was in the king's jail. And so in this time, the Lord allowed relationships, allowed him to, to, you notice the difference when he's with his brothers. His focus is on the God's ability to, to, to give uh, the God's, uh, uh, God's gift to him where he can interpret dreams. But he kept talking about his coat, right? So now his coat is gone. And now he's only able to focus on his gift in, in interpreting dreams. Now he can't talk about people bowing down. He only sees the dream in a particular way. And then he gives the interpretation of dreams of other inmates when they are set free. And then the, the king has a, a dream that he can't figure out. And then all of a sudden somebody remembers him. At the right time, the Lord brings him to the second most Powerful position in all of Egypt. And then years later, you know the story how it goes when his brothers come to him and they are, they, they are afraid because they think that Joseph is trying to get some get back. And Joseph says, no, no, you don't understand. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And there is no stop along the way that does not accomplish God's purpose. Joseph learned surely from the, the things that got under his brothers. Maybe he learned he wasn't the kind of brother he should have been. Joseph learned some things because God providentially stirs up a storm in his life. So it is with, with Jonah. The Lord says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh. Jonah has other ideas. He knows what he's up against, and so what does he do? He goes to run from God. I love what Brother Wright says. We can't run from the God who is everywhere. Where do we go to hide from? And so Jonah says, oh, that's okay. He can't get me if I'm on a cruise ship headed someplace else to Joppa because, you know, he ain't surely he's not going to mess up everybody else. And what does God do? He brings the storm because the wind and the waves are under his command. He brings the storm because God has a purpose for Jonah. He doesn't say, oh, Jonah's not available. Let me see who else is next. No, he calls a man and he gets him to where he needs him to be. And sometimes it takes a storm. As you are headed in the wrong direction, God brings storms to get us to go in the right direction. God brings storms. Now, you, you say, well, no, my ticket says Joppa. He says, but that's not what my word says. I said Nineveh. God brings storms 
He gets in the way. I like the way one preacher put it years ago. He says, God warns the children of Israel, listen, you need to repent because I will be the termite in your walls. I'll I'll tear it down. I will get in the way. God is not only a God who makes a way, but God is a God who gets in the way. And thank God for him being that kind of a Jewish mother that gets in the way. Thank God that he he gets in our path and he doesn't let us carry out all of the mischief of our hearts. If David is in a storm, it's because the divine hand of God is manipulating the circumstances to to accomplish a particular purpose. And you know the purpose, according to verse 2, that God puts David in the storm so that he could see to show him what a real rock is like. What do you mean, a rock higher than I? No, what you really discover, David, is that you're not as high as you thought you were. You're neither the rock that you thought you were. God manipulates the circumstances to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is for David to see and to digest what David already knows. Which brings us to a third and final thing. The specific purpose of God's storm in David's life so that he could see that there is a rock higher than him. I like what what he expresses it, the way he expresses it in verse 3. In verse 2 he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And here's what he says, for you have been, you have been. In other words, David is not discovering. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, I found out that you are. No, he realizes what he's always been. But sometimes what we know gets lost in the shuffle of our own experiences. Two things that David recognizes that God has always been. You've been my strong tower from my enemies. That's what he says. He says, you, in, in verse 3, he says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. In other words, now David is recognizing that his victory over his enemies is not because he was a military genius. But rather it is because of the God who saved him. Again, that's the rock that is higher than I. Sometimes we might think, and, and it's funny, I, uh, we think of, of Joshua and people, and whether it's business leaders and even church leaders, use Joshua as an example of, of what it means, or Joshua and, uh, or, uh, yeah, Joshua uh, as, as an example of, of great military leadership, and Gideon as well. This is what it means to be a great leader. Have you read those texts? Yes, they were, Joshua in particular was a mighty man of God, but what made him victorious against the, in, in the battles that he fought was not his military genius. Here's what Joshua's military genius was. He says, march around the wall for seven days, and on the seventh day, march seven times, and those of you who are bearing, who are bearing trumpets, blow the horn on the seventh time. That's the military genius. No, there's no genius in that. Try it against an enemy and see what happens. In fact, we had a church in Los Angeles. They wanted to, uh, they bought a facility, uh, used to play basketball in it. They, they wanted to buy it. It was available, the form. They wanted to buy it as their church. And so to prove that God was giving them 
this building. They marched for seven, they marched seven times. I don't know if they did it for seven days, but, but they marched around the, 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 the building and, and they said, well, this is the Lord has given it to us. And they're trying to, to duplicate because they think Joshua was such a great military genius. And I commented that, well, if they didn't pay that mortgage, they can do all the marching they want. The building still won't belong to them. Well, they moved in and they moved out. Brothers and sisters, here's sometimes what we have to understand. What made Joshua great was not military strategy. What made him great was trusting in God. What made him great, what made him, and, and perhaps that was part of David's problem, as we mentioned before. Maybe one of the reasons when kings go to war, he chose not to go to war because he had developed such a great battle strategy. Sometimes God providentially reminds us that what you think is your strength is not your strength at all. And so in David's case, he understands now the tower of strength against his enemies. You see, yes, he was a mighty man of valor. He was not afraid. He wasn't afraid of anyone. He was willing to go to battle against Goliath one-on-one. But what, made, what gave David victory over his enemies is God's covenant promise to the nation of Israel that I'll be with you. As long as you keep my commandment, I will be with you and your enemies I will defeat. I will bring them into submission. I will defeat them. And David has to reevaluate perhaps that maybe he has peace from, with all of his enemies, not because of principles that he's followed, rather because it is God who is the tower of his strength. The second thing that the Lord allows David to be reminded of, again, he says, for you have been. And then he says, let me, in verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. David is now reminded, here he is, we don't know again at what point in his life he is writing. We don't know if this is early, uh, when he early takes over the, the, the kingdom or this is late in his life. But we know that he, has, um, he is a man who, who the Lord has blessed tremendously. Maybe he thought his refreshment was in the palace of the king. Because you know that once David was anointed king... It took him a while before he could actually ascend to the throne. And then even when he did ascend to the throne, initially everyone didn't want him as king. So he wasn't able to rule over all of the tribes. They had to be subdued and then finally he ruled over a united kingdom. And then lo and behold, once he gets the kingdom united, one of the sons rebels against him and he he has to flee again. And finally, when his son Absalom is defeated, David returns to the throne, and then he is able to to rule in peace, and and his, his wealth continued to build. But David now finds, and notice the contrast here, he says that my refreshment does not come from my palace. My refreshment, my refuge, my safe place, my shelter, 
is not my palace. Remember later, David, when he expresses a desire to build a temple for the Lord, it's because he thinks that it's a shame that the ark of the Lord has to dwell in a tent and he, a mere man, gets to live in a castle. But now David in this storm recognizes that all the shelter and all the shade and all the comfort and all of the refreshment that a redeemed soul needs is not found in the palace, but it's found in that tent where the presence of the Lord is represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat where God says he will meet with his people. You see, in other words, brothers and sisters, again, if we build on brother, what Brother Elwin says, that this is the cry of a man who has been made shipwreck, and he is now being buffeted by the storms, and he recognizes that his only hope is it to be delivered from this is to find the rock that is higher than him. And if that rock is God, and that shipwrecked soul is David, the vessel that God allows to be wrecked is self-confidence and arrogance. And the storm that he experiences is not because the enemies have gotten stronger, but it's the hand of his everlasting God manipulating the circumstances around him to get David to say what David already knows. What David knows is that God is our shelter and God is our tower. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so God raises the eyesight of David in the midst of this stormy situation in his life to see what a real rock is. And then he sort of pales in its presence. Lead me, he says, to a rock that is higher than I. Oh, brothers and sisters, there are so many circumstances, so many different ways in which we can make application of this truth. And that's what God does when he brings us into the, con, into, into the communion of his, of, of his gift of grace in the person of Christ. Every time the gospel is open to us, every time this, the table is served before us, God is pointing us to a rock that is higher than I. And when we leave this place, we're going to have all kinds of people in our circles, in our network of friends, that's going to try to convince us as dirt that we are a mighty rock. And God will thank God for God who will send a storm our way and lead us to a rock that is higher than us. And in that rock, we have a, a strong tower against our enemies. And in that rock, we have a sure and a, and a, and a, and a comfortable place against all of the other storms of life. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in particular. You have not only saved us, but you have also sustained us. And we thank you for the different ways in which you bring us back to the very, very immediate truth that brought us into a saving knowledge to begin with, and that is the greatness of your love towards us in spite of. We know that we continue to wrestle with the flesh and we make more of ourselves 
and even of the things that you have given to us. We have taken the very gifts that you have given to us and we have made idols of them. We pray that you would lead us to realize that there is a rock that is greater than anything that we have accomplished or anything that we possess. Let us see it in all of its fullness and be reminded of what you are to your people and that you are not only our Savior, but you are the very joy of our salvation. Let us rejoice in you and your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with you both now and forever. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Amen.